Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thanks for taking the time to give us a listen today. This is episode number 12 of The Next Track. Well, you had to figure that when one of the co-hosts of your favorite podcast is also the proprietor of Doug's Apple Scripts for iTunes, that eventually you'd be getting a show on Apple Scripts and iTunes. And this is that episode. Before we get to a discussion along those lines, Kirk has a few items of community interest. Yeah, there's a bit of news this week that I thought was interesting. And, and the first one for music fans out there is a new Pink Floyd box set. It's going to cover the early years. So this is 1965 to 1972. So this is everything before Dark Side of the Moon. It's 27 discs. Let's see, 11 hours, 45 minutes of audio, 14 hours of audio visual material. Wow. 20 unreleased songs, more than seven hours of previously unreleased live video, five hours of rare concert footage, as well as five meticulously produced seven-inch singles in replica sleeves. Mm Mm-hmm. The problem with this box set is the cost. In the U.S., it's $700. Whoa. Now, there's a new complete Mozart set coming out, which is 200 discs, which is, I believe, $550 or $600. So if you're not doing the math at home, 200 Mozart discs for $600 or 27 Pink Floyd discs and fancy schmancy collectibles... $700. This is the way that record companies are making a lot of income these days. They're going after aging boomers who have some expendable income. So all of these bands that are doing the big box sets are bands that have been around for a long time. Yeah, I was just going to say, they've got a huge back catalog and they can monetize it by releasing box sets. Sure. And any combination, like for instance, the interesting thing about this Pink Floyd collection is that it's not just the original releases, but it's other performances, it's video performances, it's things that are obscure. And the record company obviously has access to all these, so it's they can monetize it now. And there's one more thing to remember that part of this box set is probably a copyright release. Now, what does that mean? By officially releasing old tracks that have never been released, they're eligible for copyright protection. Because these were tracks that were recorded before it was 70 years off after the author or artist's death. And I'm guessing that some of this Pink Floyd stuff, the reason they want to put it out now is so that it's protected. Pink Floyd actually did a copyright release last year, I believe. I'll look it up and link to something in the show notes about it. All right. Another thing I wanted to mention is I wrote an article for Macworld, Everything You Need to Know About Playing Music with Airplay. I think a lot of our listeners will be interested in that. There are some interesting things you can do with Airplay. In fact, what I do now, my office, I have my iMac on my desk. I have my speakers on the desk. I have my amplifier and my CD player to the right, and they are not connected. They are using Airplay. So I stream my music from my iMac to my amplifier, which is an Airplay amplifier. And not having it connected to my Mac means that I can sit in my comfy chair, which is back at the other end of my office, and listen to music without my Mac being on. So I can stream it from my iPhone or something like that. Um, But I give a bunch of tips about using AirPlay in this article. And there is a link to Kirk's Macworld article on AirPlay in our show notes. Finally, an article on my blog, um, Classical Music Needs More Silence. I was listening to some music by John Dowland um, and a couple of different recordings, and I noticed that one of them has a lot of silence at the end of most tracks, five, maybe 10 seconds of silence, whereas another set I have has about one second of silence. And it made me realize that classical music is too often in a hurry on a CD to go from one track to the next. For example, I don't remember which records I was listening to not long ago of some Beethoven sonatas, and it 
rushed almost immediately from the end of one sonata to the beginning of the next one, rather than leaving 10 seconds for you to think, okay, this sonata's over. The next one's going to be in a different key. It's going to be a different tone. So on my website, I have an article that I think I wrote 10 years ago, and it keeps getting hits. It talks about adding silence to iTunes playlists. And back in the day, I created some silent files, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 30 seconds, and one minute. I constantly get people downloading this and commenting on how happy they are um, to be able to put silence in a playlist they use for uh, exercise, for yoga, for dance, for a wedding, for anything like that. Well, that works. That works fine when you're playing music in a playlist at home or, or, or those situations. But how about when you go to a concert? The applause begins right away. There's no thought by the audience or or the orchestra or the band, for that matter, to say, hey, let's just chill for a few seconds and absorb what we just experienced. You just don't. You know, if you go to a concert, a classical concert, um, here's another show idea. We're going to talk about classical concerts one day. I really don't like the classical concert experience because as soon as the music is over, the Bravo guy yells. And there's always <laughs> one Bravo guy in the hall. And yeah. he's, as soon as the music's over, he doesn't let any silence happen. He's just Bravo at the top of his lungs. And I had one of those right next to me at a concert last year. I wanted to. Did you have thoughts of physical violence and public humiliation? Oh, it was frustrating. So our main topic this week is iTunes and AppleScript. As Doug mentioned in the intro, he is the purveyor of Doug's AppleScript for iTunes. I think we'll put a link in the show notes for that website. Oh, yeah, that'd be a, that's a great idea, Kirk. Let me, let me give you my website address right now. It's DougScripts.com, and I've been writing and posting AppleScripts for iTunes for over 15 years now. I've got well over 400 scripts for iTunes that you can download, and they're ready to use as is. I've also got plenty of pages with uh, sample scripts and tutorials that'll help people get started Apple scripting for iTunes on their own. Doug, let's start by just saying, what is AppleScript? AppleScript is a programming language. It's a relatively simple programming language, and it's built into the Mac OS. And it can be used to control the things that can happen on your computer. Now, an AppleScript script is a computer program, and it contains instructions for one or more specific applications or processes. And when that script program is run, those instructions are sent to the targeted application by the operating system, and then the app carries out those instructions, as if by magic. Now, ideally, you'd use AppleScript to automate the things you do that otherwise would be time-consuming or repetitive or annoying or repetitive. Um, AppleScript works with most every application on your computer already to a degree, but for an app to really take advantage of AppleScript, it has to have been developed to work with it. Apple has designed many of their apps with what you would call hooks for AppleScript, right? Yeah, that's right. And that's also to say, again, that not every application is 100% scriptable. Um, Apple, or the developer of an app, has to include a special framework and uh, do some other extra wiring, as it were, so that the app can actually integrate with AppleScript on the system. A lot of the apps you use all the time are scriptable. That is, they understand AppleScript and you can write scripts for them. Uh, things like Safari and Mail, TextEdit, iTunes, uh, The Finder, what else do I use? GarageBand is scriptable. And a lot of third-party apps also, like uh, BB Edit 
and Transmit and uh, Acorn. A lot of third-party apps are scriptable. So iTunes is probably one of the apps that supports AppleScript the most. Yeah, iTunes has very robust AppleScript support. In fact, um, iTunes is one of those excellent cases where AppleScript actually adds more functionality rather than just being able to automate what iTunes can already do. You can extend functionality with AppleScript on iTunes. One of the things I wanted to touch on is what actually is scriptable in iTunes because it's not everything. And there are some limitations to what you can do with iTunes scripting. But for the most part, you can do work with tracks, like tracks as actual items that can be moved or deleted or counted or played, as well as being able to access associated meta tags and other track properties of individual tracks. Same thing with playlists, again, as items that you can create or delete or play, and also as the containers of tracks with individual playlist properties, like the playlist name and the kind of playlist it is, whether it's a smart playlist or a folder playlist or genius. You can get playlist duration, its size. You can also script iTunes transport commands, probably as you'd expect, like play, pause, stop, fast forward, rewind, things like that. But there are also a number of application properties you can script. You can toggle shuffle, you can toggle mute, you can do CD ripping and converting. Uh, you can script the EQ settings, airplay settings, uh, you can access shared tracks and home sharing, manage tracks on devices, but there are some things you cannot script in iTunes. You can't, for example, alter the interface or make your own iTunes buttons or add new tags or things like that. AppleScript is limited to what the developers have provided in an AppleScript framework. But as I said earlier, iTunes is very robust in that regard. And in fact, you may not know this, but the only way to interface with iTunes, um, at least from a developer's point of view, is with AppleScript, whether using you know, AppleScript directly or using OSA script or NS Task Manager or some other framework that lets you interact with AppleScript. So give us some examples of what you can do with tracks um, using AppleScript. Well, um, in iTunes, I think the tasks that are most apt to become repetitive and aggravating have to do with simple tag editing, right? Like when you have to do the same thing to the same tags on every track in a selection or an album or what have you. For example, back in the day, I, I'd rip CDs at work with a Windows computer. Now, I don't know what software I was using, but it didn't apply any metadata to the ripped files. And then it named the ripped files using the artist name and the song name separated by a hyphen. I'm sure you've seen that, that format. And so when these got added to my home library, the file name would transfer as the song name. And since it didn't have any metadata in it, there were, there were no tags in any of these tracks. So this being the sort of thing that I was probably going to have to fix a lot, I wrote a simple script called Artist Name Corrector. It's still on the site, still very popular, that looks at the text in the name tag of each selected track. And if it contains the, if it contains the space hyphen space, then it grabs the text to the left of that, which would be the artist, and it puts it in the artist tag. And then it deletes the uh, space hyphen space that's left in the name tag, and, and everything's right as far as name and artist goes. And so that's the sort of basic example of what AppleScript is really good at, eliminating the drudgery by automating what you would have to do. One of your um, scripts that I use the most often is probably the remove end characters script. Explain that. Mm-hmm. Well, what that does is that enables you to remove a set number of characters from the beginning or the ending of any particular tag of a group of tracks. So what you would do is, let's say, for instance, you've got a, a, a bunch of tracks that, you've, that have 
0104 in front of them, and you don't want those in your track names. You could run this script and say, I want to remove the first three characters from the name tag of each of these selected tracks. And the script will do that for you automatically. That's not something that you can easily do in iTunes itself because you can't use multi-edit because you can't change the names because each track doesn't have the same name. And otherwise, you'd have to go through each track yourself one at a time. Well, this script, Remove End Characters, makes it possible for you to make those changes without having to access any of the tracks except as a selection. One example of when I use it is sometimes there's a live album and there's a date at the end of each track name. And I don't want the date. So the easiest way to use it is just to slice off all the characters at the end. You know, the, you, the script... As you change the number of characters in your script, you, you have a visual thing that shows where it's going to cut. And as you say, it, it saves an awful lot of time over, um, you know, manually selecting each track, changing the name, next, changing the name, next, changing the name. Repetitive, aggravating, repetitive, aggravating. If you do a lot of tag editing, then I'd also suggest the applet, this tag, that tag, which can copy or swap or append text between tags and also an applet named search replace tag text, which as the name suggests, lets you search for specific text in uh, a selected tag and then replace it with the text that you supply. These are scripts that really save you a lot of mouse clicks and a lot of keystrokes. And it really works well for people with OCD. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Um, but the euphemism I use is particular. But there's no denying that some people are wicked obsessed with making sure their tags are spell checked and grammar checked and case checked. So one example um, is your proper English title capitalization script. Yes, if you're particular and your tags simply must be properly title cased. What that means is the first word's capitalized, um, a, an, and the, uh, but, of, they're not capitalized. Right. Uh, this script will allow you to select which tags you want to be title cased and will rewrite them accordingly. However, AppleScript doesn't actually understand the rules of grammar or the context of the text. It just knows that a word does or doesn't start with an uppercase letter. So you can also supply your own list of exceptions for either words that you never want capitalized, like um, uh, non-English articles, or text that should always be capitalized, like USA or FBI or YMCA. One of the problems that people often encounter in their iTunes library is tracks that are not found by iTunes. If you go to play a track like this, iTunes will say, well, I can't find this track. It displays an exclamation point to the left of the track name. You've got a couple of scripts that work with that. Yes, dead tracks. Those are the tracks with the exclamation points. Dead tracks happen when iTunes is unable to locate the file for a track entry, either because it's temporarily unavailable, like because the, the drive it's on isn't mounted, or is just plain gone. But in any case, iTunes can't find this file where it was the last time. Now, I've got a few scripts that help you with these, as well as a uh, YouTube video that describes how they work. The first is list MIAs, MIA standing for missing in action. And this applet will scan the iTunes database and list the tracks whose corresponding file is not accessible in the location that iTunes expects. Now, since it lists these tracks, you can go and investigate to see what the problem may be with them. However, if you have determined that the files are really gone, you can get rid of dead tracks, remove them from iTunes 
with super remove dead tracks and that will delete every dead track from your iTunes library. And then uh, somewhat related to dead tracks, kind of the opposite, are orphaned files. Now I have a script called music folder files not added and that will scan your iTunes media folder or any other selected folder and list the files in that that don't have a corresponding track entry in iTunes. You may have deleted the track but didn't trash the file so the file is still hanging around. And with this applet you can decide to either trash the orphan file or just re-add it to iTunes. You have a few scripts that work with playlists. Now playlists are you know, on the one hand, we add our music to them, but on the other hand, we want to organize them in the sidebar and folders and, and things like that. So right. what, what do these scripts do? Well, earlier I had said that uh, Apple Script can extend the abilities of iTunes. And one thing you can't do in iTunes is select more than one playlist at a time. And this is really aggravating for me, uh, like when I want to put a bunch of playlists in a playlist folder. And it ends up you know, there's just a lot of clicking and dragging and scrolling and clicking and dragging and scrolling. Well, I've got a script called Move Playlists to Folder that displays a list of your playlists so that you can select a batch of them at once and move them to a particular playlist folder. Yeah, that, that's really good because, as you say, there's no other way to do this. And people may spend an awful lot of time dragging one playlist at a time. So this is a good way to be able to move them. Yeah, and because there are other tasks you might want to perform with more than one playlist at a time. I've got an applet called Playlist Manager, which can perform a number of tasks on a batch of playlists, like uh, renaming them, deleting them, deleting a batch of playlists, it's amazing. Uh, merging playlists together, uh, exporting a, a, a text list of their tracks. Some of us people with music OCD want to have artwork for all of our media in iTunes, and you've got a couple of scripts that help that. Yeah, there's a great script called Find Album Artwork with Google, that will do a search for images based on the artist and the album name of a selected track. And that'll help you haul in some artwork. Another popular artwork script is Save Album Art as Folder JPEG. Some third-party music players like Sonos will look in the album folder for a file named folder.jpg to use as the display artwork. And this script will export the artwork for a selected album with the appropriate name to the correct album folder. Uh, you have a script called Embed Album Artwork, which is one that I tend to use every now and then. How does that work? Right, when you use the iTunes Get Album Artwork function, and artwork for a track is downloaded from the store, essentially, iTunes doesn't actually apply that image data to the corresponding audio file. It just associates the image with the track. So this script, Embed Artwork, will assign the image data associated with a track to its files metadata actually tricks iTunes into doing that so that it travels with the file like ID3 tags do. Um, that script, by the way, only works with downloaded artwork, but there's another applet called re-embed artwork that will try to embed the artwork whether it was downloaded from the store or not. So what about other Apple scripts that do other things that aren't related to managing tracks and playlists. Yeah, one of the uh, unsung features of iTunes is that it's great for managing PDFs or digital booklets, as they're called when, they, when they're downloaded with an album. Um, but they are PDFs. So I use iTunes to gather up all these PDFs that I make from internet articles or uh, product manuals and stuff like that. Now, I have a PDF service workflow script called PDF Adder. And when this is installed in the PDF services folder, you'll see it in every print dialog in every application that has one under the PDF menu, 
right? And what this does is it intercepts a PDF file right as it's created. And then it shows you an interface with text entry fields for the name and artist, album, genre, year, and comments tags. Once you've entered info for those fields, the PDF file just created will be added to iTunes and the info that you applied will be applied to the tags in iTunes. It makes it really easy. You know, I know iBooks handles PDFs, but it's not scriptable, which is kind of a deal breaker, and I'm really surprised that it isn't. So I still use iTunes to manage a, a, a ton of PDFs. And another one I'll mention is View Cached Music. If you're an Apple Music subscriber, you may know that the tracks that you stream are actually uh, files downloaded to a cache folder on your machine. And believe it or not, these files are just sitting there even after you play them, ostensibly, because if you play them again sometime in the future, iTunes won't have to download them again. But I wrote this little applet that displays all the data about the music files that have been cached. So with this applet, View Cached Music, uh, not only can you keep an eye on what you've been streaming during your time with Apple Music, but you can access their audio previews. You can visit the album and artist pages in Apple Music, export album artwork, and even clear the files from where uh, they're cached so you can save some drive space. So listen, um, what's one of your favorite scripts? There's one script of yours that I use fairly often. It's called Copy Tag Info Tracks to Tracks. The reason I've used this is in recent years, I've changed the way I rip CDs back in the day. And we discussed this, I think, in our very first show. I used to use 160K AAC. And this was because hard drive space was a lot more expensive than it, than it is now. Some years later, I, I switched to 256. And last year, I decided I'm just going to do everything in lossless. So what I've been doing is the, the music that I really listen to most, I've taken CDs and re-ripped them. So I want to replace the existing tracks with exactly the same tags that I have. I don't want to have to edit the tags on the CD that I'm re-ripping. Now, if you rip a CD and the tags match, iTunes will replace the existing tracks with the tracks from the CD, even if it's in a different format or a different bitrate. But in most cases, they don't match exactly, or the entire album doesn't match exactly, because maybe I changed one of them at some point. But what I do then is if... I find all the tracks for an album, I put them in a playlist, I take a CD and I rip the tracks to the same playlist. So let's say there are 10 tracks on the on the album. The first 10 are the older tracks with my tags and the second 10 are the newer ones with the tags I don't like. You run this script, you copy the tags off the first set, then you select the second set, then you click go and it copies everything. Right, and it's not just the text tags and the, the number tags like year but it's also the history tags like plays and skips, last played, last skip, that kind of thing. Also the artwork, can copy that over. Um, you know, earlier in the show, in the first part of the show, you mentioned about putting some silence between tracks and, and the solution that you have is to insert an actual file in between tracks. I have a script that does something similar, but it doesn't insert any files. All it does is, it's called a space between. And what it does is it will start playing a playlist at the top and in between every track, it will wait uh, a set number of seconds that you enter so that uh, a, a space is created in between each track. Just thought I'd mention that. Okay, so let's sum up. Um, how, how hard is it to use these Apple scripts? Well, the scripts that you can download uh, from my site are reasonably easy to install. 
they download in a disk image and you just drag the scripts to where they have to go. A lot of them can be launched and run just by double clicking on them in the finder and others are best accessed from the uh, iTunes script menu where they will appear at where well they show up like menu items and you just select to launch them from the script menu and in that case they have to be installed in a special folder in your user library directory uh, but each script comes with installation instructions and there's a download FAQ fact page and a video that explains it all too and how much do these Apple scripts cost I, well scripts from my site uh, are free to download they're all free to download some scripts ask you that if you like using the script would you please send me a little money and that would be really nice other scripts are usable for 10 days and if you can get everything you need to get done with the script in 10 days then you're home free otherwise if you want to use it after 10 days uh, it's usually just about two dollars I do have other apps that are more expensive than Apple scripts like five dollars and fifteen dollars but in general um, the scripts are free and of course there are plenty of free examples to use and free information you can get at the site too so what we've been talking about here is iTunes on the Mac what do you do if you run Windows well, AppleScript does not run on Windows, and also Windows does not run at my house. I haven't actually, I haven't used Windows in years, so I'm not really up on what's going on in the Windows world as far as automation goes. However, I do have a page at my site that lists what I do know. Uh, there are some good uh, thing utilities available for Windows, for iTunes. Uh, usually they're written in VBScript. I think there's some written in JavaScript. Well, like I said, it's not an area with which I'm personally acquainted. So you're kind of on your own there. Sorry. This is the part of each program where Kirk and I like to talk about our next tracks. What we'll be listening to next at home, I have queued up Roomful of Blues live at Lupo's Heartbreak Hotel. Roomful of Blues is a fabulous jump blues swing band based in southern New England, and they are celebrating their 45th year this year with another live album but this live at lupo's album has a lot of good old favorites from one of my favorite lineups of the band it was recorded back in 1987 when lupo's was the place in providence rhode island where i grew up to see and hear some really great music uh lupo's is still around it's still a great place to go but man back in the 80s don't get me started uh but anyway if you like swing music if you like jump blues hot blues whatever you want to call it room full of blues Live at Lupo's is a great record. Kirk, what have you got? My next track this week is a new album by Bill Nelson. It's called All That I Remember. Bill Nelson became popular in a band called Bebop Deluxe in the 1970s. Um, you could consider the band a sort of glam rock, pre-punk, um, a lot of Roxy music, David Bowie influences, things like that. Um, he's an amazing guitarist. He just has a guitar technique that's extraordinary. I'm going to link in the show notes to an article I wrote on my website called Bill Nelson's Artisanal Music. After Bebop Deluxe split, uh, he made a few solo albums, and he didn't do well in the recording industry, so he gave up and he said to hell with it. And he went back to his home in Yorkshire, and he set up a home studio, and he's pumped out about 100-odd albums since the early 1980s. And every time there's a new album, I buy it. And the latest one is called All That I Remember. It's an instrumental album of music that basically goes back to his childhood and he's got listening notes to it describing each track and what it's supposed to represent. He presses 500 copies of each of the CDs these days. So if you do want one, you got to grab it pretty quickly. And after that, they're really expensive on eBay. 
Unfortunately, he hasn't been performing much. He lost his hearing in one ear and he's got some other health issues. However, he's got a listening party in the end of October in Leeds for a new album that's coming out then. And and he'll be doing a, a solo performance. And it's the first time he'll have done any live performances in a while. I got my tickets to go see it. It'll be great to see Bill Nelson perform solo, and he's going to do interviews, and everyone who goes gets a signed copy of the new album. It's going to be a party for Bill Nelson fans. So check out the article on my website, and I've got links to some tracks on SoundCloud that you can listen to, entire tracks. You can buy a lot of his music from SoundCloud. Um, Others you can buy directly from him through a magazine called Sound on Sound. I have, I think, 80 CDs by Bill Nelson, and I really like the music. And he's one of those artists I like to support. So every time there's a new album, I buy it. And this one just came this morning in the mail, and I haven't had time to listen to it yet. So that's my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.